Welcome to another episode of Vascular Crosstalk, a podcast brought to you by the North American Vascular Biology Organization, NAVO. My name is Lysandra Villa-Ellis, and I am a member of NAVO's Education Committee and your host. Today, we're trying a new format where we bring a basic scientist and a physician scientist to discuss a topic of interest. And today's topic is pulmonary hypertension. It is my pleasure to introduce Drs. Xiu Dai and Vinicio Jesus Perez, two great scientists in the field of pulmonary hypertension. Dr. Dai is a tenure-track assistant professor of medicine, member of the Translational Cardiovascular Research Center, the Bio5 Institute, and the Sarver Heart Center at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. He received his BS from Shandong University, and PhD in Biochemistry and Molecular Biology from Shongshang School of Medicine, Sun Yat-sen University, China. Dr. Dai completed his postdoctoral training in lung vascular biology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He was a research assistant professor of pediatrics at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine before moving to the University of Arizona. His research involves investigating the role of SOX-17 in the pathogenesis of pulmonary hypertension, fatty acid metabolism in pulmonary hypertension, and molecular mechanisms of obliterative vascular remodeling in pulmonary hypertension, among other um, related topics. Dr. Vinicio Jesus Perez received his MD from the University of Puerto Rico Medical School and completed an internal medicine residency at Massachusetts General Hospital. He completed a pulmonary and critical care medicine fellowship in Denver, followed by a postdoctoral research training at Stanford University. There, he focused on researching genetic and molecular mechanisms of pulmonary hypertension and idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and has devoted his clinical practice to diagnosing and managing these conditions. He is presently associate professor with tenure and staff physician at the Stanford Adult Pulmonary Hypertension Clinic, where he trains fellows pursuing careers in pulmonary hypertension as well as idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. He is a PI of a research program with the ultimate goal of identifying new therapeutic targets to treat both diseases. So welcome everybody. Today we have a special new kind of episode where we are bringing a clinician uh, and a basic scientist that are involved in the same um, field of study. And we will be discussing pulmonary hypertension from these two very unique perspectives and try to see what we can fix and <laughs> what needs to be fixed uh, still after this. Um, but our guests today both work in this area. They're collaborators, I understand, as well. Um, so let's just start with a brief perspective from both points of view. What is pulmonary hypertension to you both? So I can start with the clinical overview. So pulmonary hypertension is uh, a rare and devastating disorder of the blood vessels in the lungs. Um, it affects predominantly females. It is progressive. And as the disease evolves, the patients develop uh, significant shortness of breath, fatigue, 
eventually they evolve into right ventricular failure. And, you know, unless uh, there is aggressive therapy or a lung transplant, these patients uh, die. And usually they die at a relatively young age. Presently, there are 14 FDA-approved uh, drugs and more on the way, hopefully. None of these are curative. Uh, and ultimately, lung transplant is the only way these patients uh, make it make, uh, make it true. Um, in terms of what causes the pulmonary hypertension, it is one of the greatest mysteries in science. And this is where Dr. Dai and myself have been collaborating upon. There's a community of physicians and physician scientists and scientists who are very passionate about trying to untangle the you know, the genesis of this disease. But, you know, to put it uh, in a package that Dr. Dai can, you know, uh, can go in deeper detail, what we're dealing with is a disorder in which we have progressive loss of vessels, likely from some uh, initial injury. In many cases, we don't know. In others, we understand. Like, for example, if the patient has used methamphetamine in the past, if the patient has an infection with HIV, an autoimmune disorder. So you have this uh, vessel loss, but angiogenesis appears to be impaired. So you don't re regenerate these vessels. But most importantly, there's also an abnormal change in the cellular wall that allows cells to start to grow uh, uncontrolled. And the molecular mechanisms and genetic mechanisms that drive that is actually one of the greatest, uh, you know, topics of interest because uh, thanks to what we've learned in the last 20 years, now we're coming up with a new generation of drugs that is directly tackling some of these genetic molecular uh, mechanisms. And again, what we're seeing also is fundamentally common and can be applied to other uh, vascular diseases. So even though pulmonary hypertension is a rare disease. Um, there's a lot in common with other diseases and a lot of and data of what we are using right now, Dr. Dai and myself, to really uh, tackle this disease. Uh, our lessons learned from other uh, diseases applied to the lung. That being said, as Dr. Dai will point out very briefly, there are some unique aspects to the genetic and molecular biology of this disease that are important to take in consideration as we develop novel therapeutics. Yes. So what uh, are those uh, molecular genetic mechanisms from the basic science perspective involved in pulmonary hypertension? Right. So Vinicia, you know, has given a great, uh, you know, great view about the pulmonary hypertension. That's uh, from my point of view, so, you know, pulmonary hypertension involves, you know, many, many cell types, including the luminous side and the cell cell and then the vascular wall, the you know, medium is majority the smooth mouth cell, and then uh, the tissue include the fibroblasts and the inflammatory cells, you know, like uh, uh, leukocytes, macrophage, and other uh, cells like T cells. So, um, and that's, uh, you know, group one pulmonary hypertension is called uh, uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension, actually uh, includes those uh, heritable or the mut mutation genetic related uh, pulmonary hypertension. So one of those, uh, you know, genes called a BNPR2, that's actually account for uh, seven to eighty percent of the familiars, or uh, and then twenty to forty percent of a uh, uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension. 
So actually, this is uh, you know recently started using those like a uh, whole exon or you know whole genomic sequencing actually identify a lot of gene in additional to we already know like BMPR to for example like um, SOC seventeen or like ATP thirteen A three those are, are are new um uh, find uh, found the gene that uh, could potentially cause the the disease uh, development. And then Minister uh, also talk about actually in in the vascular bed that uh, the loss of uh, you know distal capillary uh, endothelial cell that's for like more uh, cell biology part the distal capillary uh, endothelial cell was lost. Well, in in this more remodeling or more like you know arterial uh, side or medium or even a large arteria that's a uh, overgrowth of the you know, you know endothelial cell. And also the the smooth muscle cell can cause the uh, vessel uh, constriction, and also uh, recruit those uh, fibroblast, you know, uh, myofibroblast proliferation. That can also cause the vascular stiffness. You know, eventually that can lead to um, upregulation of the you know um, arterial pressure. That you know that this part it's kind of you know that's too. From my perspective, that's uh, you know. Uh, disconnected, right? One part you you have a less, you know, impaired angiogenesis, but the other way you can have you know angiogenesis, you know, or like more prolonged angiogenesis or over, overgrowth of the vascular uh, remodeling uh, in arterial regions. Right. So it's more of an aberrant process, not that even the maybe the regeneration or the if you have like an angiogenic response to try to solve the problem is actually not properly being done. Yeah. Uh, maybe the inflammation or some other signature mm -hmm. involved there, but it's causing that this response, which should be fixing the problem is actually also making the problem worse. Absolutely correct. It's um, I think it's fair to say that this is a multifactorial disease, and uh, it's really funny. Early on in the in the original descriptions of the disease, as the pathology became more uh, more uh, obvious. Uh, when Heath Edwards uh, put together their reports on, you know, the different pathological lesions that were found in lungs of patients with uh, group one pulmonary hypertension, one of the uh, first phrases that was used is that uh, this these lesions, particularly what we call plexogenic lesions, which are these really thick convoluted balls of endothelial cells that are sort of like, you know, try to form, uh, you know, vascular tubes, but fail and create essentially just a big uh, knot that looks like a glomerulus. Um, they call this a forma frusta of angiogenesis, which is a term essentially for angiogenesis gone wrong. So it's like the cells are making an effort to put together their angiogenic program, but somehow it goes awry, it goes haywire. I am really interested in knowing if you have, um, if there's any frustration from the basic or the clinical side, you know, if you, I see you would like more clinical input in some ways, or Vinicio, you kind of cover both, but from the clinic perspective, 
is there points where you go oh my god this just needs to be addressed from like a basic science <laughs> give us something uh, what are those areas of disconnect that you identify in this field so i i can uh you know uh from my uh standpoint the you know uh, or the more basic part uh the the model we have you know the mouse model we have because we know uh research in the field we use a lot of genetic mouse model but whether the mouse model we have is cannot recapitulate the human uh, pump hypertension uh, pathology or loss of the molecular or the genetics for example the bnpr2 it's, it's account for you know at least uh 70 to 80 percent of the, the you know like a heritable uh group one pump hypertension but if we have the mutants uh, BMPR2 in the mice, they don't develop spontaneous. They need to like further insult, like a second hit. They can cause you know very minor pump tension. So I think that's the the you know uh, the the you know the, the problem we have the limitation. And the other part is that uh, right now nowadays because we have the fourteen FDA of two drug can treat patient. So the patient they actually are getting. They, they, their survival is getting better compared to 20 years ago. And they don't, uh, I think uh, there's not a lot of transplant right now. So for, for me, for our base science in, you know, we don't have, uh, you know, access to this uh, large amount of the humans uh, samples. Maybe, you know, other institutions or other faculty, they have the resource, but for the general, uh, more, you, know, uh, you know, many uh, that, they probably don't have, you know, the access to this uh, human sample that we can better uh, understand, uh, you know, the human molecular uh, part or the, or the pathology. You know, we work on the animal. I think that that's that's the disconnect uh, from uh, at least from uh, my point of views. Uh, that uh, you know, we need to address. We need to. That's why I think that's we need to collaborate with Venetia or you know. Uh, other like a physician scientists, they have the resource. They can, you know, help us to build the connection uh, between the, uh, the, you know, the clinical uh, uh, question uh, or a, a clinical presentation of those molecular abnormality that we can address using the mouse model or even the the cells uh, models, and then we can answer these questions. Uh, that right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Vinicio. What is it for you? So um, one of the key things that frustrates me and fascinates me at the same time is that patients don't behave in the same way. There is a huge heterogeneity of patients that you see in clinics. So even though you're giving them the same diagnosis, the way a patient responds to a certain medication, the way the disease evolves, the way the disease presents is very different. And it is hard for me to sort of predict accurately what will be the clinical course of that patient, what will be the response, what will be the best way to approach therapy. So, you know, one of the biggest buzzwords in the last 10 years is this precision medicine concept in which we're trying to leverage uh, the uh, omics tools uh, 
in favor of trying to get a big understanding of what makes each patient unique in a way that will allow us to, you know, uh, tailor uh, a, uh, a approach that will work best for that patient rather than using a one-size-fits-all, which is what we use right now and, you know, hoping uh, for the best. So <clears throat> I'll, I'll tell you, um, you know, it, one thing is that th this technology is now widely available, is becoming cheaper, as you know, and the amount of studies coming out where whole genome sequencing, metabolomics, proteomics, epigenomics, all of these things are just uh, popping out large group of patients that which for a rare disease is actually quite quite uh, unique <clears throat> is becoming available every day. Here's the challenge and here's where working with somebody like Dr. Dai uh, makes a big difference is once you get your hands on this uh, data, especially let's say single cell data from the lungs of these patients, how do you make sense of it in a way that you can, you know, uh, dig through all of those zeros and ones in a computer and be able to uh, come up with an understanding that can translate into a hypothesis to be tested or more importantly, into <clears throat> something that fits within the clinical uh, framework of that patient's uh, evolution. I echo what... Um, Dr. Dai points out that, you know, we're limited to tissue that comes from patients who have reached the end of the road. So it's really hard for us to be able to uh, get non-invasively uh, lung tissue so that we can do these analysis as the patient's condition evolves. There's no way to do that. These patients don't get uh, routinely biopsies. So, but then, you know, we're using this sort of quote unquote liquid biopsy by creating biobanks, getting samples so that we can do the, run these omics analysis. But, you know, for most physicians, uh, it's easy to say, oh, we want, we can run this. We will run this. But the another is like, what do I do with all the data that I'm going to get from that? And this is where then, you know, you have to work with uh, scientists. You got to work with bioinformaticians. You got to work with people who understand the biology, who understand the technology, so that not only can you come up with practical approaches that will allow you to better understand what each what makes each patient unique, and then you be able to find the best fit in terms of management and follow up but also to uh, gain a better understanding of the biology and be able to prioritize where should we be putting our efforts in terms of uh, elucidating the mechanisms of the disease. Yes. And I think that that is not just a con like a, it's not just even a problem between basic and more a clinical um driven science is even a problem for basic scientists just communicating to the bioinformatician and saying like hey let's get on the same page uh so we're looking at the same problem in similar uh approach and but what you're saying about the omics revolution and this generation of data that at the end of the day it's like how do you make sense of it um it's 
I think it's a pretty unique problem. Like we're having more data that we have time and resources to um, get through. So what would you say you are most uh, excited though about these kind of technologies or the emerging technologies specifically that are being used for pulmonary hypertension? What are you most excited about? I can start with that. So recently, you know, a lot of technology like single cell uh, sequencing or, uh, you know, like spatial transcriptomic, that can allow us to, you know, at very short period of time and give us, you know, a, a broader view about, you know, the the cellular change. Because I mentioned that the palmar vascular bed, the, the plasmon lesion, you know, it's, it's, it's in a vascular, so it can compose, you know, multiple cell types, including endocellular cell, like smooth small cell, you know, fibroblasts are a lot of like island leukocytes. So using the single cell uh, technology or the spatial, uh, you can combine together. You can, you can, you can able to um, get, you know, the, 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 you know, the majority uh, signaling uh, come up from uh, the endocellular cell, other like smooth small cell, and you can match back uh, to the tissues because originally we we need to do like uh, uh, individual gene to do immunostaining or or RNA scope to to uh, localize you know the gene you are interested in come up from uh, the RNA sequencing from the whole lung or even you are like isolated cell. But with this technology, I think it it's going to be uh, answer uh, you know our question you know very straightforward. And yeah. you and then later you can combine with the, you know classical uh, mouse genetic approach like linear tracing. You can or, or even the genetic mouse model. You can label these cells in in tissue, and then you can you know match back uh, the RNA sequencing or single cell RNA sequencing or spatial transcriptomic uh, uh, that can uh, can confirm your hypothesis. I think that that's the beauty about this technology. And right now. We are, you know, doing a lot of work, try to, you know, get those technology to all our project. And I think the coming, like, a, uh, you know, uh, single cells of preteromics, uh, it's not like popular now, but I think that will be another, you know, uh, uh, emerging field that we should uh, utilize uh, in, in, in the research of, of palm arterial hypertension. Interesting. What, what, what do you say, Vinicius? I uh, I completely um I completely agree I, you know it's uh very uh, you know it's fascinating to see work uh, as elegant as Dr. Dai and others where you know these techniques are used properly and you can really understand and see that you know how the results will you know open new doors and allow you to really you know speculate more concretely on where the you know where the field should uh, should go so i think in terms of breaking new ground in terms of understanding uh the disease proper uh, it, it makes sense. Now, how do you then leverage this in the clinical setting? Because like Dr. Dai points out, I think, you know, you can take, you can do this in a mouse model, you can do the fate mapping, but a mouse is not 
an accurate model of the complexity of uh, of a human being, right? And that's just the way it is. And Dr. Dai made it very clear. That's the best we got right now. I mean, yeah. we don't have an animal model that we can really uh, push farther than what we have right now, at least for the moment being. So one of the things that we've been doing to try to accommodate for, you know, the diversity of signals that you get from patient to patient when you use any of these omics is actually applying machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithms that can tackle in an unbiased manner this chaos in order to identify patterns that can be useful in terms of cluster patients to look at signatures that will be helpful for the clinicians to identify and determine risk. There's uh, excellent work from colleagues here at Stanford, colleagues at Imperial College of London, uh, uh, and also at Sheffield, for example, where they've been able to really uh, collect data, proteomic data, uh, RNA sequencing data from blood samples of patients with pulmonary hypertension. And we're talking about hundreds of patients different patients, unrelated patients. And what they do essentially is they subject all these uh, data to sophisticated algorithms that then allow you to prioritize some of these uh, peptides or RNA uh, RNA forms to, you know, to uh, then correlate to see if you can use these signatures to predict the risk of a patient dying in a year, for example, the risk of progression. In our study here, Dr. Sweat and Dr. Zamanian published that using a panel of inflammatory cytokines, they were able to uh, look across hundreds of patients and identify signatures that actually correlate with specific subtypes of pulmonary hypertension, which is actually important because it also uh, leverages against the work that we now know, uh, uh, you know, has been done that links inflammation to pulmonary hypertension. Uh, but, it, you know, beyond inflammation being a, you know, an attractive target, it also, you uh, you know, uh, provides a unique opportunity to phenotype uh, patients. And most importantly, rather than just using one uh, approach, now with these omics, we're like, okay, now we can really look at more patterns so we can really understand, try to think of this disease as multifactorial, but by using a platform that allows us to interpret and uh, you know, collect the data in a way that allows us to do practical decisions is where I feel is the biggest uh, is is the biggest uh, need, and this is where I anticipate the field will be moving forward in the next uh, five years. Great, that's yeah, that's uh, I guess we need to do another episode on artificial intelligence for vascular biology uh, purposes. It's yeah, that's a very cool uh, way to utilize that technology. And I wonder if in the future we would also start doing that with mice to sort of predict phenotypes when we're disrupting certain genes. Um, 
sometimes we go for a target and spend a year trying to phenotype a mouse or more to nothing <laughs> with no results that are interesting. So that might be an approach uh, that we could use in the future. So, I mean, this is a great overview, I feel, of the field. Um, what do you think are the challenges you are facing? Is, is a matter of resources? Is a matter of technology? Um, of people, students, doctors, trainees interested in the field? What would you say? You want to go first, EU? Yeah, I think as sort of Rinsha already uh, you know, talked a little bit about. So we, we generate a lot of data, but we don't have enough people or, or like a, you know a bioinformatics to to sort out you know those data because data is out there. But you know we need to somebody know the questions they can uh, help us to to get this you know the key uh, you know dysfunction pathway or dysfunction cell type to contribute the disease progress. Then we can. Uh, have a question that we can address the question. I think that's the one of the, those you know uh, challenges we, we we need to figure out because you know uh, in the academia we are we are competing with the industry to to keep this you know uh, you know people that's is is quite challenging right. Um, so I think uh, that that's that's a big big problem we have with now. You know. Yeah, I agree with that. Of course, you're dealing with a rare disease. So as we have discussed before, uh, there's always a need for more samples. There's a need for more lungs, more reliable uh, sources of cells, of blood samples, DNA, RNA, all of these uh, things. So um, you know, uh, the good news is that even though this is a rare disease, there's a, a you know, there's a very strong community where people really support each other, collaborate with. So I think that's actually one of the greatest assets we have that the pulmonary uh, circulation community right now is uh, committed to working together to move the field uh, forward, sharing reagents, protocols, cells. I mean, this is something that, you know, for me having, you know, being able to work with somebody like ZU, you know, I learn a lot and we obviously we leverage on our expertise and come up with exciting uh, work. Obviously other things that I can think about, yes, we, we definitely want people to come to our labs and learn the, you know. Time to plug in business. here for recruiting postdocs. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> always, always open for for it. And, you know, it's it's not as sexy a feel as, uh, as, say, you know, cardiac development or other cardiovascular disorders. But, you know, there is a lot of uh, exciting the, uh, development uh, going uh, going forward. And then, of course, um, I do feel that uh, the other big unmet need, of course, is, you know, more diversity, <clears throat> you know, efforts to increase the diversity in uh, clinical studies, particularly we are uh, missing more uh, Hispanics, African-Americans, Asian, Native Americans, 
in these studies, and I'm talking about, uh, you know, in, in the clinical studies, but also when we're talking about biobank, when we're talking about omics, most of the patients who are in our registries are Caucasians. And, and uh, you know, it is important to comment on the fact that, you know, uh, clinical outcomes, at least for other diseases, it's clear that race and ethnicity make a difference in terms of disease progression, response to therapy and i think that is something that will be important to understand in pulmonary hypertension and unfortunately at this point in time we really uh haven't reached the you know the level of diversity we need to really tackle this and really test whether this is indeed uh indeed true so um i feel that efforts for doing that are definitely underway. We definitely understand that it is an unmet need, but I would love to see that this is, you know, this becomes a priority in the years to come so we can really incorporate that into our approach to understand and treat the disease. Yeah, what a great point. I think that as like being used to using mice, you just don't, <laughs> there's no diversity there. Um, but what a great point is, um, is pul does pulmonary hypertension have um, different outcomes depending on ethnicity and race too, or is it more prevalent in one um, community or the other? So to answer your second question, it's uh, unclear. Mm -hmm. we, we just don't know. To answer your first question, there are studies that are supporting that outcomes for African-Americans and Hispanics may be different than those of Caucasians. Uh, and, you know, the, uh, you know, I cannot tell you that this is just uh, biologic. There are many factors that we right. are interested in investigating. So part, in addition to the work that I do in, in the lab, my clinical research also focuses on, you know, understanding, uh, you know, health equity and figuring out, you know, how healthcare is delivered to different populations, particularly underrepresented minorities versus others. And what I can tell you is, it's more complicated than just the biology. Does the biology play a role? Yes, but it is an area that needs to be further investigated. However, we have to think of this concept called the exposome. So we talk a lot about the omics, but there's also the concept of the exposome, which means that when we're looking at an individual, we also have to consider where they live, what the level of uh, anxiety is, what level of pollution, what are they taking, what are they eating? All of these things uh, become part of how this individual, the biology resp responds to, um, you know, all these uh, challenges. And I think obviously a person who lives in a ghetto has a much different situation compared to somebody that lives in a, in a, in a more urban environment. And it, it does play a role. I mean, in the field of pulmonary hypertension, I can tell you there are certainly, there's certainly evidence that point that that can be true. More studies need to be done, of course, but in other diseases like in coronary artery disease, diabetes, for example, there's really strong evidence that that, you know, there is definitely differences in outcome, differences in responses, differences in adherence, more work needs to be done. But my guess is that as we look more and more into this, we're going to see that, yeah, race, ethnicity, and 
all of these factors make a big uh, difference in terms of how patients uh, uh, respond to therapy or how the disease evolves with time. Yeah, no, those are great points. And I think that that really highlights the importance of collaboration uh, because one person cannot tackle aspects of one disease or one problem. And so in the few minutes that I have left, I would actually want to focus on that collaboration because I know you to collaborate. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit about what brought you together and what things you think um, you really benefit from each other's expertise? So um, I, I always tell uh, a real you know, story, you know, Vinicius is kind of uh, as my uh, mentor outside my own institute. So he's the person that's, you know, really, uh, encourages support me to to uh, to attempt the NIH Kina grant. So that's the foundation for my career actually. So I really appreciate that. And then after that, we 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 talk in the conference. So we started to exchange some idea about you know how 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 the disease progress. And we have you know uh, a good models that you know fits the you know the need with with the study minister working on. So we started to collaborate. We exchange the data, exchange the idea. You know, so you know that's how it works. But it's really important that uh, with the you know the original support from the initial that uh, uh, you know lead to be as an independent uh, investigator in the pump rescue field. Awesome. Yeah, for me, it's a privilege to uh, be able to work with somebody as talented. Uh, as uh, ZU, I mean, I, I I've been following ZU's career since he was a postdoctoral fellow in Dr. Yu Yang Sao's lab, and his work on HIF signaling in the vasculature certainly has been really revolutionary and fundamental to to the field. So you know, uh, he and I connected very early on. You know, I was uh, you know I was faculty, and he was a postdoctoral fellow on his way to faculty. So you know, it was a it was a real treat to be able to interact with him, not just to talk about science, but also to talk about career. And uh, you know, as uh, he's become now an independent and very successful investigator, you know, we've uh, become uh, uh, you know much closer, particularly because we share. On interest and you know I had a project coming up that involved uh, an idea exploring HIV signaling in the circulation and obviously I thought you know what I know somebody I know a guy that <laughs> really understands this better than I do so rather than me figuring this out why don't I involve this guy yeah. and you know uh, it came out uh, perfect I mean it led to uh, a solid R01 proposal where uh, ZU and I are collaborating as co-PIs and you know what I think it's a good example of <laughs> like how a physician scientist and a scientist can come together I think it's something that you know this is how you move the, the field forward and I think we both uh, benefit mutually from this uh, collaboration. What a great and inspiring way to wrap up this episode. Please let us know if you enjoyed it and what other diseases or topics you would like us to cover with this new format. You can share your thoughts and reach out to us via Twitter at Vascular Biology. We we'll look forward to hearing from you, our vascular community. 
This podcast was produced by Nambo's Education Committee, and special thanks goes to Niha Auha for making this podcast possible. This was Lissandra Vila Ellis for Vascular Crosstalk. Until next time, thanks for listening.